Good morning. Looks like I'm doing a magic act, but that's not what's happening here today. Um, We're going to be talking a little bit about coffee. Uh, Hopefully you like that. Um, A good reader is someone who does not remain bent over the pages of his text, but finds himself leaning back, closing his eyes on a line that he's read again and again, and allowing its meaning to permeate his blood. When was the last time that you read something that so grabbed your attention that it knocked you back, caused you to close your eyes and meditate on its meaning? When was the last time you read something like that? Reading today is a lost art and often considered a luxury, something I struggled with. I did not grow up really loving reading. And it wasn't until undergrad, 15 or so years ago, that I was like, okay, I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to read books. I'm going to learn this language stuff, this English stuff. And get it inside of me and learn what's happening. I never enjoyed it. One thing that I did constantly read, though, was Scripture. Read it over and over again, and the problem with reading the same book over and over again is what happens. You know how it ends, right? It kind of becomes boring. It becomes familiar. And if you've read it over and over again, you kind of get lost for what to do next. This book is unique in that sense, that we are told to read it over and over again. And this past fall... I found myself looking at this book and stating, this book is boring and it has no life. I know you're probably judging me because I'm the pa- one of the pastors here, and you'll probably be writing John to say you need to question this guy's integrity and spirituality, but I want to be honest with you this morning. This book can feel boring at times. And at the same time, I'm reading this book and I'm saying, okay, there's not much life in it. I'm reminded that that's exactly what this book is supposed to have, is life. So in Deuteronomy 32, it says, these words that I give you are life. Choose them today. Or Jesus says in John 6, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I'm sitting there going, none of that seems to be true. None of it seems to be accurate. Why isn't this happening? I'm reading it and hoping it that it would be memorable and meaningful, but it keeps falling flat. Franz Kafka, he's a 20th century German novelist, writes, if the book we are reading does not wake us as a fist hammering on our skull, why then do we read it? A book must be like an ice axe to pick away at the frozen sea within us. This is a powerful quote, and that's what I was looking for in my engagement with Scripture, was something that would finally wake me, break this frozenness within me, and change something about my relationship with God, my relationships in my life, and how I viewed reality. This morning, I want to share with, some, share with you something out of Ezekiel that grabbed my attention. Ezekiel sheds light on my condition, I believe, and it may also shed light on yours. As I read this book, as I engage Scripture on Sunday mornings or hear messages, if I were to be honest, I would say I find myself more in control of the process than I'd like to admit. I put myself in control. And what I mean by that is I evaluate everything I see, hear, read based on my preferences, my beliefs, my culture, my desires, or even my needs and wants. And in doing that, I kind of keep God at arm's length because I'm shaping for myself a limited view of who God is 
and who he's called me to be because I'm selecting the things that I already like. And Ezekiel's story woke me. Back in March and April, as I began to read again, something in his experience changed how I approached this text. And he has this dramatic encounter with God where he reaches into his, his, his daily life. Ezekiel has this vision. You may be saying, well, if God reached into my life and I had this amazing vision, I would listen too. You know, this message would be important. But the message that Ezekiel receives is the same old message. He knows this scripture inside and out. The message that God gives Ezekiel in chapter 2 and 3 talks nothing about the content. It purely talks about Ezekiel's response to God. And that's what challenged me. See, Ezekiel is a failed priest. He is serving in the temple. He has read this book inside and out. And he is charged and challenged to lead the people of Israel. He knows how the temple works. He knows how services work. He knows how to play the part. And he's looking for God's presence. The only problem is that the people of Israel are incredibly rebellious and want to put themselves in control. And so in 605, the Babylonians rise to power and they have this desire to take over the world. And part of that is taking over Egypt. And to do that, they run through Israel, this small strip of land. And in 605, they besiege Israel, and they put a king on the throne, and they take over the temple. And Ezekiel's watching this. And he's trying to tell the people, this is because you've chosen to separate yourself from God that these consequences are coming upon you. And people of Israel say, ah, as long as we offer sacrifices, we're good to go. And then in 597, Babylon comes again, and they, they besiege Jerusalem a second time. And this time, Ezekiel fares less well. He goes into exile with the deportees, and he lives now in Babylon. And he's sitting there on the shores of Babylon going, where in the world is my God? Where are the people of God? How can we change this situation? He's defeated, he's depressed, and he's disillusioned by his situation. For him, there seems to be no life. And then all of a sudden, God breaks in and does something. And it's his response to God that I want to look at this morning. So let's read this passage. If you have your Bible... Ezekiel 2, in chapter 3, it's also on the screen. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house, speaking of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back, and on it were written words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. He said to me, Son of man, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. He said to me, Son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak my very words to them, for you are not sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely I sent, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. Because all of the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. It's great imagery, isn't it? 
See, I have made your forehead, your face hard against their faces, and your forehead hard against their foreheads. Like the hardest of stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. It's great imagery, right? But really what it's talking about is, you know, if you picture that, just banging your heads against each other. Nothing seems to be getting through. Made your foreheads hard. Do not fear them or be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. He said to me, Son of man, all my words I shall speak to you. Receive in your heart and hear with your ears. Then go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them. Say to them, Thus says the Lord, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord lifted me up and bore me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat or anger of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And the next verse goes on to say that after this experience, he sits by the river in exile, stunned and depressed for seven days. And you're sitting there going, what in the world is happening? This is a strange text, right? Somewhat unusual. Maybe you haven't read this one before or you've kind of glossed over it when you have been reading it. But the power in this text is something about his experience with God and I sat there going, okay, what is happening? He's sweet in his mouth, but it gets bitter inside his stomach. We have to look at the house of Israel. The house of Israel is called rebellious. And they're rebellious against God. They've chosen to willfully revolt against him. They have a unique relationship. The people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, have this unique relationship where God has reached out to them and said, I am choosing you. You are going to be my people. I'm not choosing you because I love you are more powerful or more numerous or better than any other people. I'm choosing you simply because I love you. I'm selecting you. And he gives them these words, scripture, and he sets up a temple in their midst and he provides miracles. They come out of this, this foreign power of Egypt and he provides these miracles and they come through and they wander in the wilderness and God provides for their food and their drink. And then they come to the land of Canaan and this small group of people overtakes this land and they set up their kingdom and a temple is established and the presence of God comes down in mighty form with fire and smoke and the people of Israel can visibly see their God in their midst. How in the world did they go from all of that to rebelling? I believe they looked at their text. They looked at God's decision to love them, to choose them. And said, well, God's offered us all this, and he's given us the sacrificial system, a way to basically be forgiven over and over and over and over again. And so as long as we go to services on Saturday, participate in the temple worship, and offer sacrifices, we're okay to live however we want, to do the things that we desire. They wanted to maintain control over their religious experience. And so what they have done is they've looked at their text, they've looked at their God and said, God is wholly forgiving and wholly gracious. He's chosen us, and therefore he's obligated to forgive us. They've turned their religion into a source of license, license to live however they wanted. And what the prophets and the priests does Ezekiel over and over again is remind them that Scripture, that the temple, was never meant to be a source of license to live how they want, but it was meant to be a source of life something to drive how they lived, something to transform how they saw God and how they saw themselves. As Israel rebelled against God and chose this picture of forgiveness and grace as their main source of identifying God, they left out this whole other picture of who God was. 
Because God is also holy and just. He's got an amazing calling for Israel that calls them to go beyond where they are. And by maintaining control of this process, selecting the passages that conform to their preferences, their beliefs, their culture, they limited who God was, who they understood him to be and who God was calling them to be. And this is where I believe my faith was when reading scripture this past fall, was selecting the various pieces that I wanted but discarding those I didn't. And what that means is it left me bored because it was nothing to shape or shake who I already believed existed or how I already saw myself. There was nothing to challenge me. See, sacred reading, whether it's reading this text or hearing these passages on Sunday morning, is not about knowing more, it's about becoming more. If we're focused on learning more, Reading and understanding and, and learning, those things are essential and vital. But if it stops there, then we are stopping short from the true goal of our relationship with Christ, which is to become more like him and give him glory in the process and to be transformed into something more. See, Ezekiel is commanded three times to eat this scroll, this book, this message of God. And he reports after having eaten it that it tastes sweet as honey on his, in his mouth. But if the event had stopped there, if it didn't go any further, I believe he would have been just as empty and lifeless as before. And so this morning, I want to bring something in from the coffee roasting industry that might uh, demonstrate this. Does anybody like coffee? All right. We got a couple. We got a couple. Um, This is just going to speed up the process here for me. Um, Who really likes coffee? All right. We got a big hand back there. Oh, You guys can share it. Let's see if I can get it to the... Oh, there's a baby right there. Let's not do that. Here. All right. All right. No one died. That's good news. So I love coffee. My wife and I love coffee. Uh, We've been studying it for some time now, um, learning about it. This is a coffee that a friend and I roasted. He has a wonderful roaster at his home. Um... 13-kilo roaster. It's huge. It's beautiful. And so we have some Colombian coffee. That's what you guys got this morning with some Colombian coffee, Rainforest Alliance, nice and fresh, roasted on Friday. And what I want to demonstrate for you is a cupping. Um, Has anybody been to the roaster in Alexandria, Emmy Swings, Swings Roaster? It's a wonderful place. And on Friday morning, they do something called a cupping. And what this does is the process by which coffee roasters test the quality of the coffee, the flavor, see if it's got potential for development, and then decide whether they want to include that into their retail business. And so you can see from the picture on the screen, usually there'll be about eight different types of coffee at Swings, and you get the opportunity to taste them. And they have two cups there that we get to taste from, eight different types of coffee. It's a glorious thing. It's all free. And so you're already excited because it's free, and what's better than free? And you get to experience this coffee that's freshly roasted. And so we take these beans and we look at them. They describe the origin to them, the elevation in which they were grown, kind of the flavors that they expect out of them. And so you're looking through them, looking for malformities and imperfections, pitting, discoloration, cracking, that type of thing. And you're getting this wonderful smell. And while this is happening, they grind some coffee. And this opens up the surface level from which those flavors can be extracted. 
So the more surface level, the finer the grind, the quicker it takes to extract it. And so they grind this to a nice medium grind, and they put it in this cup, and they're encouraging you along the way to smell. Get this smell, this aroma in your mouth, and your mouth is beginning to water in anticipation. And they pour in the hot water, as I did just a few minutes ago, and they allow it to steep for three or four minutes. And what this does is it extracts the flavor, but it also releases a gas, which creates a bloom on top. It's kind of these bubbles rise to the surface, and it creates a crust. And that traps in all that wonderful aroma, the flavor. And so after three or four minutes, the curator or the master roaster of these coffees has selected them and roasted them, is describing them. He takes up a spoon and an empty cup, and he tells everybody, okay, we're going to take a spoon and a cup, and I'm going to demonstrate for you the process of tasting coffee. And what we're going to do is we're going to be a rude dinner guest. And we're going to slurp out of this spoon. And so he cracks the crust here, allows some of that fragrance to get going. I'm not going to do it there because this isn't the right process, but for the sake of time. He takes it, and he says, we're going to slurp, and then we're going to spit it out. So it looks something like this. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't it? It's great. And the goal is that we suck in through the nose and the mouth abruptly because it aspirates the coffee and allows the aroma and the flavor to hit us all at once. And so we're going to do this again. You'd swish it around for a little bit longer, and you're, you're asking, okay, is it bitter? Is it sweet? Is it sour in my mouth? Do I taste hints of chocolate or tobacco or earthiness? Or do I have floral flavors or uh, fruity flavors? And so we're slurping and we're spitting, right? We've got a bunch of people sitting around this table with eight different types of coffee, potential of 32 different tastings, and we're all slurping and spitting. Some of this is, this is going to, like, horrify some of you and we're spitting it out. And I'm saying, we have all this wonderful fresh roasted coffee that we love, and it's all free. Why are we spitting it out? This is ridiculous. This is the best opportunity that I have for free, wonderful coffee, and we have to spit it out. And this has happened over and over again, and what he says is, with all the coffee that we're tasting in a short period of time, if we were to take all this in and drink it, it would mess with us. It would agitate us a little bit. If you've ever been ramped up on coffee, you know it kind of gets in your nerve endings and you get a little bit of a jitter going. It messes with you. And I began to think to myself, this is exactly what Ezekiel is experiencing. Ezekiel reports that this message tastes sweet as honey in his mouth. But if he were to keep it in his mouth, kind of swishing around, getting the flavor profiles, learning about the text, being able to describe it, to talk about it, it would not have its intended impact. And so God tells him to fill his stomach with it. And once he fills his stomach with it, he reports going in bitterness and anger. They say, why in the world would this message move from sweet in his mouth to bitter in his stomach? It gets inside of him. It gets inside his blood and inside his nerves and it begins to agitate him, mess with him a little bit. And this happens because this message is one that's often counterintuitive against our very nature and challenges who we are at our core. And I believe that's where life happens. That's where life happens. When we come to terms 
with this text, with our Sunday morning experiences, with hearing scripture, with worshiping God, it puts us in contact with something that may make us uncomfortable. But that's where change happens. That's where life in this text begins to take shape. That's what transformed my experience from this dead experience, this boring experience, knowing how it was going to end, to being meaningful and memorable. See, our goal this morning is to move from tasting. Ah, you get it one more time. (laughs) And spitting out. To actually consuming it. To getting it inside of us. Tasting represents perception. Well, consuming reflects participation. As long as we're simply perceiving and talking about the flavors and the the aromas of God and the history of him, we're not actually getting it inside of us. And so Ezekiel has this encounter with God that puts him face to face with his brokenness, with his inadequacies, with the failure of his people. This is a painful process. But this scripture, if we approach it in an honest way, asking God to take control of the process, it puts us face to face with our brokenness. But the power of it is it does not leave us there. If we get this word inside of us, Deuteronomy 32 and John 6 come to life because it offers us a message of hope and healing, a message for today, each day, to become a better person, not just for the sake of you know, being good in society, but as a reflection of God and who he has called us to be. And in that manner, we are able to give God glory and fulfill his calling on our life. But we have to come face to face with our brokenness. So I want to talk a little bit, just very practically, about the process by which that happens, this process that changed how I approached scripture, how I read it, what I got out of it. First, we have to read this book. This is not science. It's not mind-blowing. We have to actually read this book. As I said, the challenge is, is we, if you've been in church a little while, maybe you're too familiar with this book, and you're like, okay, I know how the story ends. Or maybe you're just starting, you're like, okay, this is just weird. There's some weird stuff in here. The story that we read this morning, what's with all the hard foreheads? It just doesn't make sense. The process that I want to talk about gets your story, who you are, inside this text in a way that you can still encounter God, his presence, and see the message that he has for you without necessarily knowing all the history, the languages, all those things. They're great. They're important. But if they stop there, it's not enough. We need to read this book slowly. Next uh, week, we're going to start a sermon series out of 1 Peter. It may be a good place for you to start. By reading First Peter, um, you know, usually uh, I read until my interest fades or my time has run out. You know, which today, you know, with all the to-dos and a two-year-old and a wife and the news and everything else, it's usually a couple minutes in, right? Like things get hectic. But once we slow down, we begin to take in the text, and I want to give you four questions that will help you get inside this text and allow that text to get inside you, begin to agitate you a little bit. So the first, what does this text reveal about God? This is a great place to start. As I said, Israel had fashioned this limited view of who God was. 
He is gracious and he's forgiving, and that's pretty much all he is. Reading this text, we have to ask the question, who is God? So in Ezekiel, I see that God is somebody that is reaching out to his people, wanting to establish a relationship with them. He has a special message. This mourning, lament, and woe that's in there is about the brokenness of his heart over the fact that his people have turned their back on him. It's an immense message of love, and that's how I view God in Ezekiel too. Then secondly, what does this text reveal about humanity? There's people in this book, right? And the reality with history is that it keeps repeating itself, that we all in some way share something in common. So I have to ask, what in this text reveals something about humanity, about mankind? I see in Israel that it's the tendency to try to take control of my relationship with God, to be in control of religion, to use them for my own benefit, to manipulate them based on my preferences, my beliefs, my wants, my desires. Or I can look at Ezekiel and say, okay, there was a man who was humble and responded in obedience to God, and that's what I want to fashion my life after. Third, can you identify with one of the characters in the book, the emotions, their reactions in the text? This book is alive and active. And if we slow down when we read it, we can ask the questions that allow us to identify with the stories that are captured in it. And then finally, and this is where it agitates us a little bit, where it moves us from tasting to consuming, does this text challenge who I am, how I see myself, or how I behave? Does it challenge me? I can say out of my own life, there's many times that I read this book, and if I were to be honest... There's something in here I don't like that if I were to implement it or accept it wholesale, it would mean me changing something. But too often I'm reading too quickly and too surface of a level to be honest with myself and say, God, what do you want to speak to me out of it? And this is where life came in for me, is slowing down, asking these questions. After we've done this, we need to take something with us. I'm horrible at memorizing scripture. Just never been good at it. I can't tell you verse, chapter, all these things that, you know, the good Bible people are able to do. I was at a wedding yesterday with a pastor who just ranted on and on, knew every scripture verse, and I'm saying, okay. I know John three sixteen, right? Like <laughs> there's a limit to what I can do, and what I've found is memorable and helpful is when I come across a passage that reveals something about God or challenges who I am to write it down word for word. But take it one step further. Write down the emotions or what's going on in your life at that time when that stood out to you. What this does is it creates a context around that verse that anchors it in your history. And each time you come back to it, you can see, okay, this is what was happening when I read that verse. And it sparks that that memory, that emotion that transforms us. And then one of the most important things for me has been praying the text. I've prayed a lot. I, my mom took me to church at an early age, um, became serious about my faith in high school. And I, so I've prayed a lot. And my prayers, if I were to reflect, looked very similar, you know, over the past 15, 20, 30 years. They all look and sound similar, right? They begin to feel like a laundry list of just requests or hopes or dreams, you know. Um, if I were to be honest with myself, the prayers that I pray are often crafting God based on what I need at that moment. Again, a selective view of God and a very me-centered focus. And I believe that praying the text changes that. 
See, praying the text moves the text from abstraction to application. Moves it from abstraction to application. It brings us into contact with what's happening now and makes it important, makes it meaningful and memorable. Praying this text gives you content. If you don't know what to pray or how to pray, opening up this book and saying, okay, what do I see in this text? Going through those four questions sets the framework for meaningful prayer. It's a powerful process. So I want to give you a framework that I work through when I read this text. Um, You can also see this in various forms of Lectio Divina, this idea of sacred reading. But praying the text is where power comes in. So we have a framework before us, and we need to begin with an address to God. This is more or less that first line, that first question that we read. What does this text reveal about God? Open up with that address. Then we need to draw a theme from the text. What do we see happening here? This usually refers to something in the past. What's, what's going on? What's resonating with you at that moment? Then we need to draw a request from the text, and that means today. Looking at this text, what is God saying to me today about how I'm living, how I'm thinking, what I'm doing? Then we need to move it into the future. Based on this, how do you want me to change God? Where do I need to go next? And then simply conclude. This grounds us in something that is biblical. You're no longer praying wildly and trying to figure out what to pray next. You also feel, okay, if I spent 10 minutes in this process reading, thinking, reflecting on it, being honest with myself, and then praying this text, what I've found is that that time is more meaningful than just me aimlessly meandering trying to pray whatever comes to my mind. It gives traction to it. And I believe puts God in control of the process. Moves you from tasting to consuming. So this morning what I've done is captured one of the prayers that I prayed early on. He said back in March and April as I began to think through this process and reading Ezekiel, And I want to encourage you to close your eyes and let the words wash over you, to maybe allow it to get into your blood, to your nerve endings a little bit. But hear the themes that are drawn from the text. So I believe it's an easy thing for you to also implement in your life. So let's close our eyes and I'll pray this prayer. Based on Ezekiel 2 and 3. You are God who reaches out to humanity, longing to speak to me. To restore my relationship with you. Father, I read in this passage that you have a message to convey. Thank you for revealing yourself in this message and for catching my attention. This passage to Ezekiel directs me to take this message, to internalize it, and allow it to direct my actions. May I hear your message and apply that to how I live today and the days going forward. You promised to strengthen and empower the prophet Ezekiel. I ask that you would strengthen and empower me to accept and live out your message on a daily basis. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The texts that we have before us are words of life, of power, of transformation. But how we approach them, how we read them, how we pray them makes all the difference. 
When we try to remain in control of this process, selecting what we read, selecting what we accept, we limit our view of God and we limit the view of who God is calling us to be. I encourage the communion team to come down this morning because we're going to be serving communion. And they're going to be getting in place. Um, communion is a great act of consuming. Moves it from tasting to internalizing, from perception to participation. Symbolically, this blood, this uh, juice and the cracker represent the body and blood of Christ. And as we take communion, it's a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice. It's a reminder of his message. And this experience of communion only has power when we allow that message, the memory of him, to change something inside of us, allow it to agitate us. The message that he shares with us is one of self-denial, of granting him control and putting ourselves second. What are we saying earlier in the verse? We need more of you, God, and less of me. As the community team gets in place, you can go ahead and begin serving the elements. As you take these elements, I want you to think of two things. Are you willing to move from tasting, simply slurping and getting the flavor profile, to consuming this message? Are you willing to relinquish control of your relationship with God back to him? Will you give him control and engage him on his own turf rather than limiting him by our preferences, our beliefs, and our culture? Then finally, will you give this a shot? Move from abstraction to application by reading and praying this text, integrating it into your life, allowing God to agitate you a little bit. Because in coming face-to-face with our brokenness, that agitation, we find life and meaning. Once you've received the elements, feel free to take them as you are ready, and then we'll come back together and conclude with prayer. Father, we come to you this morning admitting that when we take control, the things around us begin to break down. We elevate ourselves above others. And that elevation causes pain, disharmony, bitterness, anger, rage. Father, we pray that there would be more of you in our lives, in our church, in our community. That, Lord, you would transform something inside of us that we would truly become more into your image. Father, for the pain of those uh, injustices around us, we ask for healing. That you would give us a hand in the healing and the, the life that comes out of those. We pray for this text that you would help us to get it inside of us. That something in there is intriguing and powerful, memorable and meaningful. Lord, and ultimately it changes something about us. Pray as people this week engage in your word that they would learn more about you and that the image of who you are would blow their mind. Make this thing alive in us that we might feel and become truly alive in you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.